Isaiah 44, starting in verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with the planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of a forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the word of the Lord. Man, what a fun text, right? (laughs) All right. I want you to imagine that you are taking to work with you every single day something that's making you miserable. And I want you to picture that literally, whether you carry a, a backpack or a briefcase or a stack of stuff to work, that it's literally a tangible item that you're taking to work with you and it's making you miserable. If someone alerted you to the fact that that was kind of ruining everything, would you take it out and just decide like, I don't need you as part of my work life. I'm not going to take you with me. And I think the answer is yes. Like, I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. I want to be content. I'm not going to take you to work. Well, the reality is like scripture is basically saying we're, we're taking something into work with us that is making us miserable. Um, so we're talking about big picture, six sermons together. We're talking about the gospel at work. We're talking about how the Bible, how the gospel itself informs the way we go about both vocational work, our career, and also avocational work, all the unpaid work that all of you do. And last week I introduced you to this phrase that I hope stuck with you where I mentioned that not only does God want to work through you in your work, but God also wants to work in you through your work. So in other words, not not only is God equipping you and building you into the kind of person, the kind of faith, the kind of character that as you walk into your workplace, God is working through you, but he is also using the very work that you engage in to do something in you, to do something in your heart, in your mind, in your emotions and affections, in your imagination. And last week we talked about identity and how that statement is true there. Today I want to talk to you about idols or idolatry at work. 
kind of introducing this topic, Robert Alexander in his book, The Gospel-Centered Life at Work, says this. He says, because work touches our deepest needs for significance, success, and security for ourselves and our families, it is a prime place to see where our hearts are drawn to something other than Jesus and his purposes. So I'm going to give you this one big truth this morning and kind of take some time to kind of in a little bit more topical fashion unpack this with you. But here's kind of the one big idea. You will find freedom and contentment in your work. You will find it by functionally relying on and serving God. And as we talk about idols this morning, I'm going to unpack these four points. And um, I know you all been waiting for with bated breath. We're back to alliteration, okay? Two weeks off was, it was painful, it was hard, but here we go. We got this morning, we got the pervasiveness of idols, the promise of idols, the paradoxical power of idols, and the purging of idols. What would we do if we recognize this is a problem in my heart, in my mind, in my life, and I want to be done with them? And daily, I mean, over and over, I want to be done with them. Okay, what comes to mind when I say the word idol? And I mean I-D-O-L, not idle, lazy versus hardworking. But what, what comes to mind? What do you first picture when I say the word idle? And maybe you, some of you think of a literal like carved image or fashioned image, some kind of figurine or a trinket. Or maybe you picture one of the many different ancient temples of like the you know, the Egyptian culture had their temples and the Greco-Roman culture had their temples and the Mayan and Aztec cultures, they all had their temples. And many of them are preserved even to this day. And I think we associate idols with those and we think, oh yeah, idols are kind of like these relics of the past. Occasionally we find them like in an archeological dig, but, but we're smarter than that in 2022 and Western culture, progressive culture. We have gone beyond that, right? Well, let me, let me lay some groundwork with idols. Let me just give you a, like kind of a brief history of idolatry. As most of you probably know, and you've studied in classes from the time you were a little child, most all of the ancient cultures had not a god, but a pantheon of gods, many, many gods. They had a king god and a queen god. They had Gods of the sun, the moon, the stars, gods of the earth, gods of the seas, gods of the harvest, gods of rain and fertility, gods of war, gods of love, and gods of work. And in many cases, those ancient cultures fashioned like literal idols that they would have in temples, like the big grand idol to this God would be in a temple. But they would very often have a smaller version of that, a less expensive version of that in their homes. And they would have little altars in their homes with these gods and they literally worshiped them. They literally bowed down to them. They literally depended on these figurines to make life work for them, to give them identity and meaning and purpose. They depended on them for various kinds of help. They sacrificed to these gods, sometimes even sacrificing their children to these gods. And I want to pause for a moment and just ask the question, why? Like, why gods? Why idols? You know, as you go from culture to culture, like all over the world, 
it's not like people who thought a certain way had idols and gods, but everybody else did not. It's kind of a universal truth that people had gods. And I want us to, to consider why that is. And I, I, this is not in any means, by any means, exhaustive, but let me give you two reasons why there are gods and idols. Um, number one, anthropologists will tell you our hearts were made for worship. The scripture tells you that. There's not such a thing as worshipers and non-worshippers. Maybe you're even here this morning and you would say, I don't believe in the God of the Bible, but you do worship someone or something. What I mean is you, you have to praise someone. You have to love someone. You have to trust and depend on someone. You have to build your sense of meaning and identity and purpose around someone. And if people reject the God of the Bible, they have to put someone or something else in his place to say, I'm building my life around someone. And, and you may be sitting here and saying, like, well, I don't do that, or I don't see progressive culture doing that. And that's simply because one of the, one of the main idols of modern progressive culture is self. And we look internally and say, I am my own God. I am the, you know, the captain of my own soul, the master of my own fate. I trust no one except me. I depend on no one but me. I love essentially no one but me. I will build my own sense of identity and significance. And what you've done is you've made essentially yourself a God. But our hearts were made for worship. And that's important to latch onto that truth. But there's a second reason also, and that is that we have to make sense of our world. And again, anthropologists, sociologists will tell you, like every human being, one of the things that sets us apart from the animals, the animals are not going through life saying like, where did I come from? And where am I going? And what is the meaning of life? And how do I determine right and wrong? And, and, and how do I know what God is like? And how do I know what I am like or what I'm supposed to be like? And how do I know like the source of truth? They're not wrestling with those questions, but every human culture is wrestling with questions like that. And these are, these are fun words and a different way to say it, but, but human beings are always, through stories, building a framework or a worldview, answering questions of origin and theology and anthropology and teleology and soteriology and ethics and destiny and big things like that. And that's why you have like ancient Greek and Norse and Eastern and Native American mythologies where people have essentially invented stories, they've invented myths to explain all of those things, all those very important things. Where did I come from? Because where I came from determines like who I am and who I'm connected to and what the meaning of life is. And they've invented gods and idols and they worship and, and serve them and they've assigned roles to these different idols so that then they can say, okay, now I know who I'm supposed to worship and serve. Now I know who I should depend on. Now I know where blessings come from. Now I know where various types of blessings come from. Like if I need fertility for my crops, I pray to this God. If I need fertility for my womb, I pray to this different God and, and so on. Well, if we fast forward, you know, whatever, 2,000 years since the time of Jesus at least, most of you would say, I don't have idols in my home. And what you would mean is I don't have idols in my home in the sense that there's an altar and there's that room and there's that space and there's that figurine that we bow down to. And probably none of you read ancient mythologies of any culture as if they're true. And you're not trying to build your life and the meaning of your life. You may be like, I read them because they're interesting, but you're not like, I actually believe this stuff. I think this is historically accurate. 
And so we can say like, hey, yay for us, we're so advanced. Um, but I would say not so fast because I think all we've done is we've replaced the idols in our homes with idols in our hearts. So the first point I said is the pervasiveness of idols. And I think the reality is that the moment you understand what an idol is and what an idol does, you recognize they're everywhere. And I don't just mean everywhere out there. They're, they're everywhere. Like they are all over all aspects of our broken, fallen humanity. As Ezekiel 14 warns the Old Testament prophet, he's basically saying even your leaders have replaced idols out there with idols of the heart. So they're not just something out there that you can see and identify and be like, you can see that you're bowing down to an idol. And, and it's almost more dangerous that we've internalized them and they're just kind of like concepts because we don't see them in the same way and we don't even often know when the posture of my heart is bowing down to an idol. You know, worship, I don't mind calling this a worship service, it is, but I think there's a very dangerous thing that can happen when we're like, that's what worship is. Worship happens for this like hour, hour and a half block of time on Sunday morning. You go and you praise God and you sing and there are prayers and there's a sermon and, and then the rest of the week, it's like we got to work. You know that, that worship is way beyond that. It's what you're doing all the time. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something. Worship is trusting and depending on something with your life. It's, it's treasuring something. It's praising something and calling someone else alongside you to be like, look at this. You got to see this. This is so cool. This is so important. All of that is worship. So I'm just asking, do you do any of those things with your work, your career, your vocation? Do any of you find yourself treasuring your work, like loving it, obsessing over it? That even when you're not at work, it's not, I'm not saying that you love it. I'm not saying you're like, I, I can't stop thinking about work when I'm not at work because I just love it so much. But it's like, but I, but I do treasure it because of what it does for me. Do any of you find yourself functionally depending on, functionally trusting your work, your vocation, your career track, your education? Do any of you find yourself basing your sense of self-worth or your sense of security and stability in life on not God, but on something that's going on with work or just the fact that you have a vocation or you have a certain level of vocation that affords you certain opportunities? I just want to remind you of the first command in Exodus 20 as God is giving the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And I think if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you're probably thinking, well, I don't have other gods before God. And what you're thinking is, I don't have other gods that are above him. And I would even poke at that a little bit and say, Really? Aren't there times, aren't there moments, aren't there decisions, aren't there reactions that demonstrate that you actually have put something else at least momentarily above God? But the reality is if you look at that word, you shall have no other gods before me, it could be translated even, you shall have no other gods before my face. It's not just above me. It's God's not sitting there being like, I, I just want to be the top God in your pantheon. I don't care what other things you serve so long as you slot them just under me. He's saying, no other gods before my face. 
And if you know the history of the, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, they, they very often, like we do, are like, I don't serve God exclusively. I don't serve God uh, all by himself. I kind of hedge my bets with these other gods that I keep kind of like waiting in the wings. And I, and, I, and I go to the temple and I make that sacrifice. And we have Passover as a family. And I pray to Yahweh, but, but I have these other things. And God's like, none of that. But I think that's the reality of what we often do with our work is that we would say like, I go to church on Sunday. Yes, I love and worship God, like Yahweh, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. But then functionally, there are all these other things that are vying for that treasure, that dependence, all of that. So let me just kind of begin here. And then we like, don't worry, I'm saying begin, but we, we rapidly go through some of this material. One point is like three sentences. Don't hold me to that, but it's, it's short, okay? But as I say the pervasiveness of idolatry, two things I want to do is I want to define idolatry for you, and I want to help you diagnose it so you can recognize it in your own heart. So defining idolatry, here's a couple different definitions, a few. John Piper, in his article, What is an Idol?, says this, Anything we come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true and living God. And I like that. It's, it's uh, in the place of wholehearted reliance. It's not just like in place of God. I, like I've turned from God and now I'm seeking something else. It's like I need God plus is kind of what he's saying. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines it this way. He says, idolatry is looking to your own wisdom and competence or to some other created thing to provide the power, approval, comfort, and security that only God can provide. David Pallison, who's written many books on Christian counseling in his article, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, says, when something or someone besides Jesus has taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight, that's idolatry. And I'll just add my own, not because it's better. It's just a little bit different way of saying it. Idolatry is looking to any created thing to be for you what God is meant to be or to do for you what God is meant to do. And, and I just conclude out of those four definitions, it's obvious, it should be obvious, we are all still idolaters. And because the idols have altars that are set up in our hearts and in our imaginations, we carry them around with us all the time, at least subconsciously, we take them into work with us every day. And here's what the idols are doing, and we're talking about work. So here's what idols do in your, in your work. Your, your very purpose for working, your motivations for working will be in at least partly driven by idols, things that you crave, things that you want to serve, things that you want to depend on. Your idols shape your actions, your attitudes, your reactions. When, when very often like something happens in the workplace and it's conflict, it's a challenge, it's a tension, and something just comes out of you. And we very often are like, well, that, that, that wasn't me. Well, of course, in a sense, it was you because it, it came out of you. And what that reaction is driven by is an idol. Your idols maybe don't create the conflict at work, but they help explain at least your side of the conflict at work, what you're going through. And do you know that this is even true? After we're done with this series, we want to start breaking out into different faith and work cohorts where people in different industry sectors like education and business and financial and um, just different things like that 
are meeting together and talk, continuing to support one another and talk about these things. Because do you know even whole industries, whole areas of work have similar cultural and corporate idols. And some of you could even step back and say, as an educator, I know what some of those idols that basically everyone in my industry is, is propelled by, is driven by certain ideologies which are held up to be almost godlike. Yeah, this happens in politics. This happens in business. This happens even in blue-collar industries. To understand idols a little bit more, in counseling, we use the language of surface idols and deep idols or root idols. Let me just explain. So a surface idol is, is probably just what it sounds like. These are things that other people can see that you build your life around. So other people can see when you're building your life around money or your physical health, or reputation, body image, career, food, sex, recreation, vacation, your house, your car, your appearance, your kids, your wardrobe. Those are surface idols. You see it, other people see it. The idea of a deep idol or a root idol, are the, these are the underlying heart motivations that have replaced God as ultimate things that you must have. So these are things like comfort, security, Autonomy, like freedom, approval, success, power, control. And let me ask you a couple questions about your surface and deep idols. What do you want from those maybe even good and basic things that show up as surface idols? And by the way, did you notice that they're good and basic things? Money is not bad. We need it to live. Some of us with inflation going on, we wish we had more of it. And I don't mean in a greedy, covetous way. Family is good. Sex is good. Food is good. The, the approval of other people is good. Like having a house, having a car is good. Having a job is good. But, the, but again, the question is, what do you want from those good and basic things that show up in your life as surface idols? What do you want out of your work what do you want out of your career? What do, you, what do you ultimately hope it'll be or do for you? Okay, let me use the illustration of money. So again, there's nothing wrong with money per se, but what do you want from money? What do you want from it? And, and you probably have different answers. Some of you are like, well, I want the buying power that affords me so I can have nice things. And someone else would say, well, I kind of subconsciously, I, I want to build a certain image that other people look to, and I need money to do that. I need status, you know? I need the esteem of other people. Some of you are like, I don't even care about spending money. I just want to be socking money away because I, I, I need it for this sense of security with so many other th things and variables that I can't control in my life. Just the idea of having this nest egg that's growing gives me a sense of security. So you see what I mean? People are using the same idol to achieve different ends. It's important to understand as you go to work and as you just live, I know why I'm using money a certain way. How does money control you? And again, I'm just using it as an illustration. You may say, money's not my thing. Great. But money is many people's thing. And money, like I know people that money motivates them to work too much. You know, and, and it would present as like, you're a workaholic, but what's really underneath the workaholism is a love of money, 
again, maybe for comfort, maybe for security, maybe for buying power, but you work too much because you're like, if I work, 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 I'll get a promotion. And with that promotion will come a raise and better benefits so I can do more with that. And some of you, you're like, well, if I, if I work more, I'm hourly. So then I get to overtime, which are, you know, the only good hours of my job are the hours beyond 40 a week because then I'm making what I'm actually worth. So money may be driving you in that way. Or maybe this is you. Maybe you stay at a job that you hate because the money's good. And you're like, I wasn't made for this. I despise this. Like, I want to do, like, if I were free in Christ to do anything I want or anything I feel like I'm equipped or, or, or God has gifted me to do, I would not be doing what I'm doing, but the money's good. Or maybe it causes you to be dishonest at work in the sense of, like, you're, you're boasting around your boss about what you've done. You're kind of hiding the negative things that you are actually responsible for because, again, you're striving for more and you're like, I, I want to look really good so that when it comes time for more, I get more. Or some of you, you're just like, I, I know that my thing is I'm just, it drives how I'm constantly stressed at work because I want more money and I'm not getting more. And, and so I'm just like constantly frustrated and frazzled. Okay. So you see how one idol could be doing many, many, many different things for different ones of you in the work context. Let me ask a second question about this. How does a deep idol prop up and make a surface idol significantly more powerful and dangerous in your life? And again, using money as the surface idol, let's use control as the deep idol. How does control prop up your love of money? Well, you're like, I can control a lot more of my life if I have a lot more money. And there is that illusion, and there's a reality to that as well. I want control. I want to be in control of my life. And if I have more, and I have more socked away, and I can build friendships and connections by, you know, whatever, taking people to nice dinners, then they like me, and I kind of influence them, or taking them to play golf, and then, I, then they like me, and I can influence them. I can get, things to, I, I can get people to do things for me. And what you're doing is you're boosting this internal psychological sense of control through money, okay? So that's just kind of understanding idols. Deep surface, all those different definitions. Now let's diagnose. So I'm gonna give you, I don't know, six or seven just like one-liners. How do I know what my idols are? Number one, what do you treasure? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your, your heart will always follow what you're like, I set my eyes on it. It's like Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's like, I, I see that it's beautiful. It's desirable. I want it. I need it. That's one way. A second question, what do you fear? I feel like, I, you know, my life would unravel if this happened to me or if I didn't have this. And those fears are helping to show you, maybe I've made too much of a created thing. Uh, number three, what makes your blood boil? I don't mean like, that's frustrating. I mean, you see it on the news or it happened again at work or your family's the, and you're like, you are so angry. You just want to put your fist through somebody's head. You have an idol. Number four, what do your thoughts go back to time and time again? So, you know, when you're daydreaming, it's like, I should be working on this. And my thoughts are going back to what? What do they go back to over and over again? What is that obsession about? That may be pointing out an idol. 
Number five, what do you functionally rely on to make life work for you? I mean, we could all sit here and be like, I just believe in God. Yeah, right. What do you functionally rely on to make life go the way that you want it to go? What do you functionally trust and rely on to make work and work situations go the way that you want? And then just last diagnostic, fill in the blank. Jesus plus what equals my happiness? Jesus plus what equals my happiness? Okay, those are some diagnostics. Okay, that's the long point. Okay, the pervasiveness of idols. I just want you to see they're everywhere. And I, I know many of you, most of you, and I know that you love God. Okay, the question is not do you love God? Do you go to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? It's none of those things. It's, it's do you give any space in your heart, in your imagination, in your thoughts to some of these other idols? Now, why do we do that? And that's kind of point two, the promise of idols. Why do any of us serve and give time and give energy to idols? I think it comes down to this. Idols promise to give you what you want. Why do you serve? Why do you depend on? Why do you treasure comfort, security, approval, affirmation? I could go on and on with the things I've already listed. Well, it's because you're thinking, you're hearing it say to you, if you take me in, I will satisfy you. I will make you insanely happy and content. And you see how the ancient cultures did this with like, um, almost every pantheon had at least three main gods beyond like the king creator God and the queen and all that. But they had a, f- a fertility, a prosperity, and a pleasure God. And you just think, okay, here we are thousands of years later, fertility, prosperity, and pleasure. And we still worship the same things because we're like, that's what I want. That's what I need. I want to be satisfied. Um, I think the other main promise along with that is that a God says to us, Like, serve me, bow down your heart to me, trust me, and I'll let you be in control. A God is kind of always like, I got a really nice car and I'm willing to ride shotgun. You drive. You be in control. Let me sit here. It's my car at the end of the day, but man, are we going to have fun and man, are you going to be in control. And if you're smart, you know, it's, it's kind of a Faustian bargain. It's like, give me your allegiance, sell me your soul, and I'll make you wildly happy. I'll give you everything you could ever want. And it's a Faustian bargain because you are selling your soul in exchange for a promise that we'll now see is pretty empty. So number three, the paradoxical power of idols. And I'll give you both sides of this, and then we'll talk about it for a moment. I say paradoxical power because kind of like point 3A is they exert tremendous control over your heart and mind. That's a reality. They are powerful. They are, they are in everything. Okay? So they exert tremendous power and control. And yet, 3B, they are utterly worthless and powerless at the very same time. Um, you know the story in 1 Kings 18, I think it illustrates both sides of this. In 1 Kings 18, King Ahab is the king of Israel, the northern tribes. And there's this prophet named Elijah who's kind of raving about how all the people of God have gone with Ahab and Jezebel and others. And they're serving the Baals, the false gods. And uh, I don't know where he gets this idea, but, but Elijah's like, hey, let's have this showdown 
between your prophets of Baal and, and me. And here's how this is going to go. First, we're going to gather all the people together. We're going to build two altars. We're going to sacrifice two bulls on these altars. And the God that sends down fire to consume your sacrifice, that's the true God. And everybody has to worship that God. And they're like, great, that sounds awesome. And Elijah's like, you first. Um, which is kind of interesting because if, if Baal was real, he's obviously not afraid that Baal is real because he's like, nothing's going to happen. But, but you first. You pick what bull you want. You make your altar. And he just sits there for like half the day. And, and, and they're, they're dancing around the altar and they're praying and they're crying out. And First Kings 18, if you read it, it just gets more and more intense that they, they start raving and it says they start cutting themselves with lances. And there's this word that like the blood is gushing out of them. And Elijah's sitting there saying to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, and what he's saying is, if Yahweh is God, serve him. But if Baal, then follow him. He's saying you can't serve, you can't worship God and something else. Now you've had your turn. You spent all day raving like madmen, cutting yourself, injuring yourself. And uh, kids, this is why you should read your Bibles. Because Elijah, if you know the story, partway through, he's like, hey, sorry to break in, prophets of Baal. But um, is it possible your God is sleeping? Or he's like, he's probably busy with somebody else. Or again, this is why you should read your Bibles. He's like, maybe he's on the toilet. He's, he's tied up. Okay. Can't answer you right now, but keep going. And you see both sides that Baal exerts an incredible control and influence over these people's lives. That they would dance around and they're just so sure, like if I cut myself and I'm just bleeding for my God, then he will answer me. That, that is a tremendous control over your heart and mind. And at the very same time, Elijah's like, nothing is ever going to happen because Baal doesn't even exist except in your imagination. He is worthless. He is powerless to do anything for you. But consider yourself. When you, when you walk into the workplace and you are desperate for affirmation, desperate for control, desperate for autonomy, do you understand the unspoken power that that God has over you to make you do all kinds of crazy things that in your right mind you would never do? You're not free to serve Christ. You are a slave to another God. I was talking to someone a while back who was kind of boasting to me about how he used manipulation and bullying in the workplace to get what he wanted. And I was like, why? One, why would you use those tools? Two, why would you be proud of it? And he's like, because I want, I want power. I want control. I want recognition. Like, I deserve a certain thing at work. It is owed to me. He used words like that. And those deep idols of like, I need that power. I deserve that control, that respect. Led him to rationalize like slander, backstabbing, manipulation, harming a bunch of innocent coworkers. But I want you to think about what you're rationalizing to defend your idols. What do you go into the workplace and you're like, eh, it's, I mean, yeah, there's collateral damage, but I want my thing. Again, Keller from Counterfeit 
God says an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. But they have that kind of power over us. But I want to I set you free to release that power today by, again, reminding you they're utterly worthless and powerless. That's why we read Isaiah 44 this morning, because it, it would be hilarious if it weren't so tragic. That the picture that, that Edith read from, from Isaiah 44 this morning is that the, the guy goes into the woods, he chops down a tree, he takes half the tree, chops it up as firewood, throws it in the oven, keeps his family warm, bakes his food, and the other half of it, he builds an idol and bows down and worships it and says, oh, you have all power and control, please bless my life. And it's just stupid. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's It's irrational. Jeremiah 51, every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. They have feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And, and probably my favorite in the Bible from Jeremiah 10 is like, uh, Jeremiah's like, your idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And birds just landing on your arms. Can't do anything about it. And what I want you to hear the Bible saying in these verses is the, the only power that an idol has over you is the power that you give it by submitting to it and depending on it and treasuring it. If you don't feed the beast, it doesn't die for other people, but it dies for you. Here's the crux of the thing. I'm, I'm talking to Jesus followers, most of you, or you're pursuing God. You're trying to understand him. And I want to again say, we're not talking about, do you have faith in God for your eternal salvation? It's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about, do I, do I genuinely love God? Do I read my Bible and pray? Do I, do I want to be, and am I in fact more moral and ethical than most of my coworkers? Am I doing good work? And the answer may be yes to all those things. But the question is, what are you functionally relying on? What are you functionally serving to make work good for you? Here's the key. I mean, you might be thinking work is okay so long as I'm in control. Work is okay so long as I'm comfortable. Work is okay so long as I'm getting recognition and approval. Work is okay so long as I'm making enough money. Work is okay so long as I'm getting my weekends and PTO to relax. Work is okay so long as my, work, my coworkers respect me. And what you need to hear yourself saying is my, my significance, my definition of success is dependent on Jesus plus something. And that's a recipe for disaster. So, we got to do what God commanded the Israelites to do in the Old Testament, which is tear down your high places, cast out your idols. In the, in the New Testament, 1 John 5.16 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And this is the last point, the purging of your idols. Three like, very simple things, but they're hard. Number one, recognize. You can't root out an idol from your heart if you don't see it for what it is. 
And the reason I took the time to define an idol in so many different ways and to give you so many different types of diagnostics is we got to get to the bottom, and I mean in our own hearts, not looking at a spouse or a friend or someone that you hate. Because by the way, if you hate someone, you see their idols very clearly, don't you? You have, you have, amaz- you have stunning clarity on what their idols are. You know what their idols are. Well, we got to recognize what our idols are. And I'd encourage you to regularly do something like this simple self-counseling exercise that I use where basically you think about a challenge or a conflict at work. Okay, you all have them. And again, this could be like vocational work, career work, or it could be unpaid work, just being a mom, being a parent. But something that's gotten you riled up and frustrated, I put this in your gospel community questions for this week so you can work, actually work through this. But basically what you do is you say, what's the situation? And you describe the situation. Then you say, what are the surface issues and challenges? And that's, that's where most bosses and coworkers are going to take you if they even shoot for conflict resolution at all. They're like, what's going on? Well, she said this, and, I, you know, and they're like, well, stop doing that. Okay, problem solved. But, it, but you know it's not. Because question three is, what are the deeper issues in your heart that are contributing to this situation at work? What are the deeper issues in your heart? Or another way to ask it is, what do you want that you're not getting? And when I do this exercise, I come up with things like this. Like, I just wanted appreciation or respect. Is that so bad? Notice how self-righteous I am. (laughs) I just wanted appreciation or respect. Is that so bad? And the answer is, it's a yes or no question. The answer is, no. The answer is no. It's not so bad. But the problem is when that becomes a ruling desire. Like, I'm not okay. I I know my heart is in turmoil because I'm not getting something. That's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. I realized when I came in here this morning and there was like, there was a prom here last night, a high school prom, and it, but it looks more like a unicorn was sacrificed because (laughs) there's like glitter everywhere. And I realized like, to, to most of you, like, there's like, oh, what a mess. There's glitter everywhere. And to me, I'm like, oh, man, like my idol of order. Because this doesn't look like how it's supposed to look. And the rest of you are like, oh, I mean, I, there's six inches of fruit tape stuck on the floor right there. I can see it from here filled with glitter. It's, it's crushing my soul right now. Okay. Recognize. Like, and, and I'm making fun because we, we can do this. Like, the moment you acknowledge, like, yep, I struggle with idolatry, the moment you've kind of freed yourself to be honest with yourself and with other people around you, because, again, and my daughter's sitting here. My daughter knows my idols. My wife knows my idols. My boys who just turned nine and seven this weekend, they don't use this kind of language, but, but they could tell you, here's some deeper stuff going on in dad's life. And, and we got to be the kind of gospel-driven culture that just, like, liberates one another to actually be able to talk about what's going on in our hearts, stuff that drives us over and over again, okay? That's recognition. Number two, repent, okay? So just confess that functionally I'm relying on someone or something else other than God to be what God was meant to be and do for me. And you agree with God that the source of my frustration, my discontentment, is not just that situation out there at work, 
but it's what I'm treasuring in my heart. It's what I'm depending on. It's what I so desperately need and want that I'm not getting. And repentance is like, God, I changed my mind about that thing. And I agree with you about that thing. And I acknowledge that I am breaking the first commandment of having other gods before you. So recognize, repent, and then thirdly, replace. I can't say just stop caring about those idols because you know that doesn't work. Just, just stop caring about being in control. You know, I try. Just stop caring about order. I tried, and then I walked in here this morning, okay? You have to replace your affection with something greater. The expulsive power of a greater affection. And I want to just end with this. So Edith read this verse for us this morning, still in Isaiah 44, verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and he marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Stop making idols in your image. Do you know you can serve the true and living God who says, I made you in my image? It is not about you crafting things that look and feel and, and, and reflect your experience and your opinions and your perspectives. That's idolatry. What you, what you get to do is turn and say, wait, there is a true and living God, a creator God who loved me so much. He made me to be like him. And when I went astray into idolatry and sin, he gave his own life to redeem me, to restore that image and likeness so that I look like him, not the other way around. We get that kind of God. 1 Kings 18, dancing around, cutting themselves with knives, slashing, shedding our blood for our God. Do you know you can serve a God who shed his blood for you? God never asked you to shed your blood for him. Look at, look at how dedicated I am, God. Look at all the sacrifices I'm making for you. And, and maybe ministry itself could be an idol. Look at all my sacrifice. Look at all my service. And he's like, stop. I shed my blood for you. And we're going to celebrate it here in a moment. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, shed his blood, broke his body to bring us home into his family forever, to find true contentment and joy forever. Love the true and living God, knowing, get this, knowing he's the only God who will love you in return. No other God. You can, you can serve control like I do. You can serve order like I do. You can serve respect like I do. Okay, I'm saying I struggle with these things. I get no affection back from those things, I can assure you. No love. God loved you so much, he gave his son for you. All right, I'll close with this from Robert, Robert Alexander again. Our work was never intended to satisfy us in the ways God can. So when we pursue work apart from him, sooner or later it will feel empty. That emptiness is one of God's gifts a reminder that God alone is big and strong enough to be the source of our comfort, security, success, and acceptance. Thank you, God.